This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Day. For 50 years, that ticking sound has meant one thing, 60 Minutes on CBS. And one newsman came to define the program with his Take No Prisoners interviews, Mike Wallace. I'm Mike Wallace. I'm Mike Wallace. I'm Mike Wallace. Wallace. Wallace was a pioneer in holding politicians and the powerful accountable, and he helped set the stage for a new generation of journalists looking to get to the truth. He died in 2012, but a new documentary, Mike Wallace is Here!, explores his career and the times that defined it through never-before-seen archival footage of him challenging subjects as diverse as the Ayatollah Khomeini, Richard Nixon, Leona Helmsley, Bill O'Reilly, and a young Donald Trump. Journalism is under fire, and particularly from powerful people who don't like being challenged. The world just saw Trump, as president, joking with Russian autocrat Vladimir Putin about eliminating so-called fake news. Putin, of course, leads a country where dozens of journalists have been murdered without consequence. Trump also has nothing but nice things to say about Saudi Arabia's leader, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, whom U.S. intelligence agencies say is to blame for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a Saudi dissident and Washington Post journalist. So in this climate, what would Mike Wallace do? We can't ask the man himself, but we can look at what he did, as well as the journalism world he helped create. We spoke with the director of the movie, Avi Belkin, recently for Political Theater. Avi Belkin, your uh, your movie, Mike Wallace is Here, traces you know more than 50 years of Mike Wallace's life as, as a journalist. It, uh, it It's a kind of a remarkable format because you had access to the 60 Minutes and CBS News archives, and, and you have this sort of treasure trove. You're able to tell his story through kind of like the uh, uh, the side view, the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern view of, of things, because it's so much of it, you, you know, went through all this footage, sometimes you know, several hours for what would be a five-minute segment on 60 Minutes. And it's this really eye-opening view of, of Mike Wallace. And uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, how you sort of opened the film, which is his interview with Bill O'Reilly. Uh, and it's because it sets the stage. It definitely sets a tone uh, in the interaction between the two, which is, is uh, it kind of, I th- it almost feels like it catches the audience a little off guard. Like, oh, wait, this is not going to be hey, geography, is it? It caught me off guard, I got to say. When I first saw that interview... So, like you said, we got the archives kind of opened for us, this secret vault of 60 Minutes News. And I was watching for months, just hours of interviews. And when I first saw that interview, that's an interview that was taped in 2004. And when I first saw it, I was shocked because it felt like it was taped yesterday. Mm-hmm. It felt relevant. Those people felt alive. And now Mike is obviously dead. And O'Reilly is kind of dead in a right. way. And... But it felt like it's going on today in what we see. And I kind of want to open the field with it because I felt like not only is it feeling like a changing of the guard situation, but it also was kind of setting the tone for this movie, which was a confrontational tone. It mm-hmm. was kind of a ticking tone. And in that uh, first interview, Mike kind of confronts O'Reilly. He shows him some clips of O'Reilly yelling at people. And he tells him, this is not an interview. This is a lecture. 
And O'Reilly kind of throws it back at him and says, well, I, I'm your son. You basically <laughs> informed the way that I work today, which obviously Mike's take great offense to. And that's kind of the movie starting point, basically. I feel like I've seen some of these interviews, uh, you know, particularly sort of the mid-career ones from the 80s and 90s. You found these great clips of him doing Nightbeat, which was when he pioneered this form of interviewing where you're, you're really well-researched and you kind of challenge the subject. And then also these, what are amusing or embarrassing, depending on your take, uh, Both. Of, of him you know, yeah, being a television pitchman for, yeah. for cigarettes and for some sort of weird lard product and, <laughs> and, yeah. and so forth. Fluffo and, and all it, those beautiful, uh, yeah. yeah. In a way, you can see it as being... Uh, obviously a, a kind of a black mark in his career, but I really feel like that's what made Mike such a different animal in the journalist world. He did not come from the academic world. He came from showmanship. He came from being an actor, being a pitchman, being a game show host. And he was perfectly suited for the change that television kind of created with journalism. When Television came into the game. Up till then, journalism was very objective, very Edward Morrow, Cronkite, Severide, very straight-laced guys that gave you the news like the government is giving you the news. And then television came into the game and it became suddenly an entertaining sport. you got to compete with the audience. And Mike was perfectly suited to do that because he had this showmanship quality. So he was a movie star. His voice was unbelievable. He knew how to perform in front of the camera. And he just took advantage of that vacuum that existed back then, that there was no journalist who kind of knew how to perform. So those commercials, those things that he kind of took big shame throughout his life, it was like a chip on his shoulder that he had to prove that he was a serious journalist, was also his biggest strength. So I kind of find it fascinating as a story about a person that, you know, kind of carries this cross across his back, which gives him his power. And, and it's also fascinating in just the current political and, and journalistic uh, world we find ourselves in where the president of the United States is a former reality television star. It is almost no big deal now for people to have no had a, you know, a, a background. Uh, I mean, the, maybe one of the more revealing interviews with the current president, Donald Trump, uh, was, was done by George Stephanopoulos, who started his career as a, you know, as a political campaign operative for the Clintons. And, and we don't even think about that. He did say that. He explicitly didn't look at collusion. He said there was no... I did. He said that he, there was insufficient evidence to say there was a conspiracy. I read the conclusion of the report. Your film makes, the, okay. makes sort of the case... And what's nice about it is that you don't do it through, you know, hitting anybody over the head, but it makes the case that this, in a way, we're living in a world that Mike Wallace really helped create. 100%. And the movie title kind of states basically that, that Mike never left. The name of the movie is Mike Wallace is Here, which is obviously a reference to back then the form of scary words in the English language were Mike <laughs> Wallace is Here, which meant that if you come to the office and your secretary tells you, Mike Wallace is here to see you. You're in for a bad day. Right. And you're going to be shamed on national television. Oh, yeah, in minimum. And so, but also in a way, Mike's legacy is with us today in many ways. And you see it throughout the films. It's not just the, the hard question that he invented and kind of made the staple of what we see today in interviews. But like you said, that mix between television and politics, between showmanship and careers. And I really think in many, many ways, Mike informed what we see today. But it's important to say, Mike had a balance to what he did. And I think balance is key at the end of the day. And Mike 
was balanced. His heart was in the right place when he went to do the interview. I don't think he went only for the sensationalism of it. I really felt like he was trying to get, and I saw those were interviews, I really felt like he was trying to get real color out of the interview. He didn't want to do a puff piece. He wanted to get some real, you know, emotion. And sometimes you got to unsettle the, the person you're interviewing to get him to feel uncomfortable, to get him to steer away from the scripted answers. Right. And that was Mike's goal, and that's what he did, I think, the best in the profession that I've ever seen. But since then, especially like O'Reilly does, and obviously worst-case scenarios in more than day-to-day, people have taken that into, um, I'm basically going to shout at you my opinions and validate what I think. And Mike was about the answers. He did ask questions to get answers. He didn't ask questions just to validate his opinion. And I think that's where we kind of differ today and sadly differ today. The, the Wallace family didn't have any kind of control, you know, they, they, they sort of gave their blessing, you know, especially when you went to collect some of the archives that, that yeah. uh, Mike had donated to the University of Texas. But, you know, this is not a talking head movie, like where you're, you know, giving them their, their say. I mean, these, this is like hours and hours and hours, I mean, days, weeks, months, who knows, of footage that really does complete like offer a fairly complete picture including uh, an interview that he and his son chris wallace yeah. uh, currently of fox news uh conducted and it talk a little bit about the family you know aspect because there is a lot about his family that's covered including the death of, of his son peter whom he finds in greece uh, after a uh, crazy story yeah. uh and and uh the, the, his his son had died tragically in, in greece in the, in the 60s and then his interactions with Chris, you know, which were, I, th- I thought, sort of fascinating. Like, there's a, a, a small snippet of an interview with, with Chris. So, yeah, like you said, the family was not involved in it. Like, the first person we contacted was Chris, actually, and he gave his blessings. And then we contacted CBS, they gave their blessing, and then we had creative control throughout the process. And Chris actually saw the film for the first time five days before the film was airing in Sundance. So this was like a nerve-wracking experience. He flew into LA to watch it, and the movie was finished already, so there's nothing he can do, in a way. And we're sitting in, the, in this theater, and I'm showing Chris this is the film, and he really loved it. He really felt like we captured his father. And I felt like from the beginning, I told that to Chris, I wouldn't, I'm not going to hold any punches. I don't think that Mike would have wanted to be in a situation where we hold punches. And I felt like by doing an archive film, you're kind of staying very true to the period. There's a moment that I love in the film where Mike is interviewing Oriana Falacci, mm-hmm. the Italian journalist. Yeah. And he kind of says, what do you see your role as, an entertainer? And she tells him, no, I'm an historian. And Mike goes, you're not a historian. And then she goes, journalists are historians that write history the moment it happens. And it's the best way to write history. Mm-hmm. And then Mike disagrees with her and he says that he feels that historians sit 20 years after, 50 years after the events have happened and kind of give the perspective on what happened and give the context to it. And I'm with Oriana on that element. And I felt like by doing documentary, a movie that stays only on the archives, I'm doing basically the Oriana angle of it. Mm-hmm. Instead of going to the people today saying, oh, Mike was the greatest, Mike changed, what we're doing right now, basically, I kind of wanted to leave it out of the film and stay in the present. Kind of, mm-hmm. you know, witness those moments, how journalism was basically reflecting events back then and how it was getting people to see history in the television screen, but also to kind of, you know, interact with history the way that Mike kind of interacts with history in the Khomeini interview, for example. I was just going to bring that up, that, that his work contradicts his own feelings about this, because 
if you only watch the Khomeini interview or, or the parts of it from your film and then look at that through, through the lens of Anwar Sadat's assassination, which Khomeini kind of, you know, nudges his, <laughs> his own followers to. I mean, that's a whole new understanding of how history unfolded in 1979, 1980 with the Iranian hostage crisis that is never reflected in any sort of historical document. I don't feel. I mean, it may, it's, a, it's a drier version of it that we get when we're, when we're removed from it for thir- by 30 years. But it was so immediate in that moment and chilling. There's a chilling moment in, in this film. Great. And it took a lot of brave to go into that interview. He went, he flew to Iran in the middle of that revolution where there's hostages, sat down with Khomeini that, who does that? Nobody have ever seen or sat with Khomeini and called him a lunatic to his face. And that's just an amazing, really classic Mike Wallace moment because he just didn't, you know, have no fear. When he go, went after a question, he just had no, you know, kind of stop sign at any point. And I think that's a moment where history kind of was influenced by journalism. I think there's a lot of moments like that. And I think the movie shows a lot of moments where, you know, journalism cover history, but also becomes part of history. And I do believe that that shows, like you said, that Mike was wrong. And I do believe that Oriana was right. I do believe that journalists are historians and are part of history. It, it seemed that his colleagues, the 60 Minutes, also got that as well, because they, in, in, you, you show uh, this series of interviews that the, that the correspondents did with him as he was retiring. Um, and at one point, Morley Safer, you know, says, just asks him straight up, like, why are you such a prick? And, and it's such a great moment. You know, yeah. it's so funny, you know, and, and, and Mike sort of dances around it a little bit. And he's like, can you give an example? And Safer says, uh, your life? <laughs> and it is this, and, and then you lay out for the next 90 minutes, um, this really complicated picture of somebody who, I mean, I don't think there's any way to look at it, but that he was, you know, considered himself a, uh, somebody who was there to do a job and that, you know, our understanding of events is largely colored, I, I think a lot by, by what he did. And then there are these uh, sort of uh, some of these unfortunate yeah. <laughs> effects that we're, that we're living with as well, uh, that he seemed to, I don't know, I, I, w- I, would, I would love to have heard, you know, heard his take on, on a Donald Trump presidency. I mean, it's just... Me too, man. And I would love to see an interview with Donald Trump today. I don't know if Trump would have given one today, but that early interview that we see in the film, we with, have an with interview... With Trump, yeah. Yeah, with Trump when he was 37. So this was before, you know, even came to thought about yeah. him going into politics, but Mike had such sharp instincts. He asks him if he's going to go into politics mm-hmm. later on. What's left? Politics? Exactly. But he's 37. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one of the amazing things about Mike. He was able to get to the core of his subject with a question. He really had a skill that was like an, an animalistic instinct. And he asks him, what's left? Politics? And Trump says, no, not politics. And that's just a beautiful moment. It kind of shows, uh, in a way, Mike instincts and Trump lack of uh, foresight, I would say. But he does go on to say that he's very worried about the situation in the world and someone needs to negotiate uh, an arms agreement. And if, if no one's going to do it, he can do it. And <laughs> you can kind of see Trump's colors shining there. Even then, it was interesting. There, there was some phraseology that you hear with what Trump says that you know we'll, we won't if we're not careful we won't have a country. I mean, this is a line that he yeah. repeats a lot. 
particularly in, when he's talking about immigration. Let's listen to a clip of Wallace interviewing a very young Trump. Donald, politics? There's so many. No, not politics. You've said that you could do a better job at negotiating an arms control agreement with the Soviets than some of these professionals who've been trying to do it for years. I didn't say me, Mike. I said somebody has to do it. If it were me, that'd be fine. I could do it. You... Somebody has to help this country. And if they don't, the country and the world are in big trouble. Because within a short period of time, as sure as we're sitting here, there's not going to be a country and there's not going to be a world. But the thing that struck me also about that segment, and I know there's more to it, is that granted, you know, Trump was 37 years old then, but he was so he was so much more articulate. I mean, the vocabulary was more complicated. The sentence structure was more complicated. I mean, it, it is like a different person, even though you know that it's Trump. And then you listen to what he says now, and it, it is, it's this very jagged uh, sentence structure. The vocabulary is very off. He, he repeats himself. He uses a lot of adverbs over and over you and over again. You know what changed? People changed. <laughs> yes. The audience changed. I think that's one of the most beautiful things. It's nice that you're picking up on that. One of the most interesting and beautiful things that I witnessed when I was watching those hours of interviews from the 60s, 50s, 70s, is the level of conversation that mm -hmm. used to exist. People were so much artic more articulate. The, the level of discourse was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And now it's not. <laughs> and, and I really blame in many ways the, the audience because the audience are who demands that level of intercourse. Mm -hmm. A lot of people talk about journalism today and how bad it is or what's the problem with it. And they take out of the equation the audience. And the audience are a big part of what makes journalism what it is. If people don't demand a higher level of discourse. If they don't demand from the president a higher level of answers, then he's not going to give them. Right. And that's it. If he's winning the next election with those answers, why should he make uh, more complex answers? And it's the same with journalism. If people are not demanding tougher journalists, tougher interviews, tougher investigative journalism, and they're not. Most people today go to get affirmation on their beliefs. They're not opening the television to be like, oh, maybe I'm wrong. And I feel like this is a... Um, a two-way street, I would say. This is going on to the audience and the people as well. Well, I think that's a good spot for us to, to <laughs> close on. That's a good, that's a good thought. And uh, Avi, tell me again when the Mike Wallace is here is out in July theaters. 26th. Okay. Go see it. All right. Thank you so much for taking a little time. Thank you. I'm Jason Dick, and that's another edition of Political Theater. Kidding. That's going to do it for us today, though. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. Have a great week.